Why is it that some people are able to achieve so much while others struggle to even get started? Is there a common trait amongst successful people? In this episode, we talk about habits, how they work, how to remove bad ones and replace them with better ones. This is Hit Reply, Episode 8. Hey, and welcome to Hit Reply, the podcast that gives you an inside view on what it's like to start a startup. I'm Mike. And I'm Fred. And in this episode, we'll be talking about habits. But first, we just got back from America. Yeah, we're back. We got in just in time before the election, so we are safe back yep. in the UK. And, uh, I am severely jet-lagged. I yeah. don't know how you're feeling. I feel okay now. I didn't think I was jet-lagged at all, and then I didn't sleep for like a whole night. And I was just lying in bed. I think I pretty slept a few hours that night. Um, but other than that, I haven't felt too bad. We were only flying in from New York, so it was only five hours. Not as bad as the West Coast back to the UK, but yeah, it, yeah, the jet lag is real. Yeah, I mean, the flight out there was much worse. That's the longest I've ever been on a plane for. I think it was about ten and a half hours. It was a long the time. flight time. So, for those of you that don't know, we flew to San Francisco, hired a car, and spent a couple of days in San Fran. Drove down to LA on the coastal route. And then from LA down to San Diego, and then we finished it off by flying to New York and then back home again. And Mike, it was the first time you drove in another country, right? Yeah, I mean, it was my first time in America. And yeah, first time that I've driven on the wrong side of the road. That was an experience. (laughs) Uh, the, the, The initial drive that we did back from the airport to our Airbnb, I think it was about a 10 minute drive or something. Yeah, it's the most terrifying 10 minutes of my life. And that's kind of feeding into what we're talking to today about habits. And it's kind of this idea of reprogramming habits. So driving a car is a habit for me. It's second nature. I learned how to do it and it was difficult when I was learning. But I've been driving now for something like eight years and I don't think about driving anymore. It just happens. You know, I get in the car and I change gear when I need to and I just deal with it. It's not it's a it's a subconscious thing that happens. I can tell Mike, you really need to pay attention. More. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get I get told that. Yeah, you keep it at the curb. <laughs> You're all over the place. Hitting people, other cars. Yeah. But it's fine. It's fine. They're a cover. <laughs> and so while I can drive comfortably and easily over here, when you go to another country, especially when they drive on the different side of the road and different side of the car and things like that it changes everything and i went back to what it felt like when i was first learning to drive which is everything's new everything's different and i don't have any habits learned for dealing with anything really multiple times especially on the first couple of days i kept slamming my left hand into the driver's door because i'm used to moving that hand over to change gear or pull up the handbrake or do anything with it because the car is the other way around for me yeah, it's totally strange. I only drove for about 10 minutes while we were out there. And it was when I was tired in the dark in a town that we hadn't been in before. And I haven't driven for about two years. Uh, so the combination of all of those things meant that it was pretty freaky. So I can totally understand that when you're driving on the other side of the road, and especially when you're tired, in that first 10 minutes, we were really tired getting off the plane. It's not easy at all. Yeah, on the flight out, I slept for maybe two hours. So I was pretty tired then as well. But the adrenaline kicked in, so that was okay. 
So we recently listened to a book by Charles Duhigg called The Power of Habit. And that's why we're talking about habit today. And in the book, Charles Duhigg describes habit as a choice that we deliberately make at some point and then stop thinking about, but continue doing often every day. In the book, they talk about a study that was done by Duke University researchers, and they found that more than 40% of the actions people performed each day weren't actually decisions, but habits. And that's quite a big number. And I wonder from my own life sometimes whether it's maybe even more than that. Most of my life is probably on autopilot, and it's only at certain times do I make decisions that are going to change the direction of what I do. Yeah, I think, you know, 40% of actions is quite a lot. I feel like doing certain activities, it's more. So like bringing it back to the driving thing, I feel that more than 40% of my driving is habit-based. That's why it was so difficult driving in a different country. And that's one of the things they bring up in the book about changing habits, modifying habits, that it has to be a conscious decision to change it. And Charles Duhigg says that change might not be fast and it isn't always easy, but with time and effort, almost any habit can be reshaped. And that was what I started to experience towards the end of our driving was I was getting more used to it and I wasn't hitting the door as much and I was more used to how the car worked what to do at intersections and things like that the intersections were the worst I pull up to the end of a road and instinctively I want to pull on to the left hand side of the road yeah that was something that we both had to look out for of when you were giving me directions and things like that telling me pull on to the right side of the road because my habit was still so ingrained and it's not a quick thing to override. It's like looking in the mirror and trying to do stuff. I find that whenever I'm trying to shave, I have to be careful that I don't shave half my beard off because doing things in the mirror with your hands is the opposite to what you'd expect. Yeah. And it's the same as when you were driving in America. The natural instinct is just to go onto the side of the road that you normally go on, but everything's reversed, it's flipped, and you have to go against your instinct every time. This fits in quite nicely with another book that I've been reading, which is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And it's a really interesting book. I think if you want to read any book about the brain, it'd be either that book or The Chimp Paradox by Professor Steve Peters. And the real premise of the book is that the brain has two different systems of working. And for simplicity, Daniel Kahneman describes those as system one and system two. And system one is fast, intuitive, implicit, automatic. It's a subconscious process. System two, on the other hand, is a slower, deliberate, explicit, controlled, conscious process that requires effort. And I think the easiest way to explain this is to ask the question, what is two times two? Four. Congratulations. You've been paying attention. Yep. Gold star. (laughs) But I think you'd struggle a bit more if I asked you what is 13 times 27? Yeah. Yeah, I'd need to break out my calculator for that. Yeah. And that kind of shows that there are different processes for different problems. Some processes happen automatically. When someone says two times two, you can't help but think four. If you've been wired that way, if you've been taught that over and over, you'll know that the answer is four. But you won't know the answer is 13 times 27 and you have to stop. Your automatic process will say, nope, no answer, and hand over control to system two, which is very lazy and begrudgingly kicks into action and says, okay, I'll try and work out what's going on here then, and gets to action. Now, the interesting thing about this for us, thinking about habits, is that habits are a system one process. They are something that we do without thinking, something that over time we have learned to do and just become second nature. So one of the things that the power of habit goes into is a study that MIT did 
where they discovered a neurological sequence at the core of every habit. This sequence consisted of three different parts, a cue, a routine, and a reward. And if you want to understand a habit that you have, you have to first understand the cue, the routine, and the reward that makes up that habit. Yeah, and one of the things they say in the book is that it's easier to replace a habit than it is to remove a habit. So you, then the next question is, well, how do you replace a habit? What does that look like? And the process that they came up with, the framework that the book presents, has a few steps. The first step is that you identify the routine. Now, this should be the most obvious part. It's the action that you're taking that you're looking to change. So maybe that's that every day in the afternoon, you go to the cafeteria and you buy and eat a cookie and you stand there chatting to your colleagues for 10 minutes. Once you've worked out what the routine is, then you move on to the next step. Yeah, so once you know what the routine is, you can then start experimenting with the rewards to try and identify what that is. So in the example that you gave of going to the cafeteria, buying a cookie, eating it, and talking with friends, you might be able to try some different things. So instead of going to buy a cookie, maybe you go and buy a banana instead. Or maybe you just go out for a walk and don't go and buy food at all. Or potentially you just go and speak to one of your colleagues for 10 minutes or so and see if that satisfies the reward that you were craving. And you may be surprised by what reward actually satisfies your craving. And an example of this is Febreze. And I'm sure it's something that is a product that everyone has heard of. Yeah. But I didn't know about how it first started. And it was quite interesting explaining it in the book. So they created this product that was really, really good but essentially no one wanted it to start with. And it was a product that basically removed bad smells. And that was all it did. It didn't replace them with a nicely scented room like an air freshener would, where it covers up smells. It just got rid of them entirely. And when I read this, I was amazed because I have heard of Febreze and I didn't know it was a revolutionary product. I just thought it was another product that you buy on the shelves that smells nice. And you spray around your house. An air freshener. Yeah, but it started out very different to that. Yeah, so one of the examples the book gives is of a park ranger, a lady who was a park ranger who worked a lot with skunks. Yeah, bad combo. Yeah, and one of the problems that she had was that if she brought someone back to her flat, the flat didn't always have a great smell. And Fabrice thought that she was a fantastic customer to have. And she was. She absolutely loved the Fabrice product. And she wrote him a letter saying how grateful she was of the product existing because now her home didn't smell like skunks. Totally changed their life. Yeah. The problem with that is that no one else cared. No one else keeps skunks. It's quite a niche market to say you're going to be the product that removes skunk smells. Yes, most people don't have skunks. And that was the problem. That the normal household didn't identify with the problem that Febreze was solving. It took them a while, but they eventually figured it out. And one of their execs said, no one craves scentlessness. On the other hand, lots of people crave a nice smell after they've spent 30 minutes cleaning. So they overhauled their product and they overhauled their marketing. They added a scent to the Febreze product and then changed their marketing to emphasize that. That when you use Febreze, it gives your house a clean smell. Two months later, their sales doubled. And that touches on a really important point that to make a habit really work, you need that craving. You need to desire to do that habit, to do that routine, to achieve the reward. You need to crave the reward. And that's what Febreze found. And most cravings are like this. They're obvious in retrospect, but incredibly hard to see when we are under their influence. So once you know what you're craving, what the real reward is that you're performing this habit and action for, 
you next want to isolate the cue. What is it that triggers this routine, this habit? And there's a story about some eyewitnesses that sums this up quite well. So eyewitnesses often misremember key facts, which is obviously not ideal. So while some misremember, others often recollect very clearly and accurately. So some people would say maybe the robber was a man when she was clearly wearing a skirt. Others would say it was dusk when it was 2pm. And these mistakes really weren't helping the police department. They weren't helping to work out what the truth was. So scientists came in and said, okay, let's look into this. Let's see how we can solve this. And lots of scientists tried to solve it, but no one succeeded. And then a psychologist at the University of Western Ontario took a different approach. They focused focused on how things were said rather than what was said. They watched videotape after videotape and they couldn't see anything. There was just too much going on. So they had an idea. Limit the elements they would focus on. There were three elements. The questioner's tone, the facial expressions of the witness, and how close the witness and the questioner were sitting to each other. To do this, they removed any information that would distract them from those elements. They turned the volume down on the television, so instead of hearing words, all they could hear was the tone of the questioner's voice. They taped a sheet of paper over the questioner's face, so all they could see was the witness's expressions. And they held a tape measure to the screen to measure the distance from each other. And once they had limited the focus, the patterns jumped out. Witnesses who misremembered facts were usually questioned by cops who used a gentle, friendly tone. When environmental cues said, we are friends, a gentle tone, a smiling face, the witnesses were more likely to misremember what had occurred. And maybe because subconsciously, those friendship cues triggered a habit to please the questioner. And I wonder, maybe it was because they were more relaxed. So instead of using system two, which is the system that kicks in when we need to think deeply about something, they used the more flawed system one, which is quick at processing stuff, but doesn't always recollect things as they were. And that story sums up one of the problems that we face when we're trying to change our habits is identifying the cues that trigger off those habits. Often there's lots happening at the time when a habit kicks off and we're not always sure what it was that triggered that habit. So an example of this is eating breakfast. Many of us will have a habit of eating breakfast at a certain time each day, but do we do that because we're hungry? Do we do it because the clock says 7.30? Do we do it because our kids have started eating? Or do we do it because we've just got dressed and that's when the breakfast habit kicks in? Experiments have shown that almost all habitual cues fit into one of five categories. Location, time, emotional state, other people, and immediately preceding action. If you want to try and find out what the cue is, then when a habit kicks in, Note down one for each of these. Where are you? What time is it? What's your emotional state? Who else is around? What action preceded the urge? So an example of this might be, where are you? Well, I'm at my desk. What time is it? 2.59. What's your emotional state? Bored. Who else is around? No one. What action preceded this urge? Answered an email. If you do this every time the urge for a habit kicks in, then you'll eventually be able to see patterns emerging as to what's causing, as to what the cue is, for that routine. Once you've identified the cue, the routine, and then the reward, it's time to make a plan. So as we've already discussed, habits are a formula. When I see cue, I will do routine in order to get reward. And re-engineering that requires choices. If the habit is to have a cookie in the cafe at 3pm every day, and the reward is distraction and socialising, then maybe you set an alarm for 3pm and go and talk to a colleague for 10 minutes instead. It might not immediately work. Some days you will fail, but eventually your habit will change. It'll become more automatic over time. So we've obviously just given a brief overview of the framework described in The Power of Habit. So if you're interested and you want to learn more about it, we'll have a link in the show notes to the book. 
So that framework is a great way of understanding how habits form and how we can change them. But it's worth noting that we don't often realize how powerful our habits are. So an example of that is with smokers. Physical addiction to nicotine lasts only as long as the chemical is in the smoker's bloodstream, about 100 hours after the last cigarette. So urges that we think of as nicotine addictive twinges are really behavioral habits asserting themselves. We crave a cigarette at breakfast a month later, not because we physically need it, but because we fondly remember the rush that it once provided each morning and our habits trigger off a cue that we want to see through with a routine and then we want the reward similarly with exercising quite often people want a sense of accomplishment they crave that regular sense of triumph from tracking their performances and along with the endorphins released that self-reward is often enough to make the physical activity into a habit so as an example if you want to start running each morning it's essential that you choose a simple cue like always lacing up your running trainers before breakfast or leaving your running clothes next to your bed and a clear reward a sense of accomplishment from recording your miles or that endorphin rush you get from the jog and for the habit to really work you need to start craving that reward it's that craving of the reward that will drive you to perform the routine when you get the cue when that trigger comes of you waking up and your running clothes are beside your bed you'll crave the endorphins and that will be what triggers off the routine So you can use the power of habits to your advantage. And that's something that a guy called Tony Dungy did. He was an American football coach that took over a team that were known to be not very good. And he completely turned them around by getting them to rewire their habits. So out of the three steps that make up a habit, the cue, the routine, and the reward, Dungy only wanted to attack the middle step, the routine. He knew from experience that it was easier to convince someone to adopt a new behavior if there was something familiar at the beginning and the end. Now this was different to most American football coaches. They would try to win by having lots of different plays. Dungy, on the other hand, won by having very, very few plays, but his team was the best at them. There's a great quote from Dungy which is, champions don't do extraordinary things. They do ordinary things, but they do them without thinking, too fast for the other team to react. They follow the habits they've learned. And that links in really well with how we started off this episode. How do successful people achieve so much? How do champions maintain such a high level of performance? And something that I've noticed from podcasts I've listened to and things I've read is that a lot of really successful people have a really strong morning routine. They have a daily routine where they wake up and they do a few certain things every morning, no matter what's going on. Another book that I've read that links in here is The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. And in the book, Hal mentions something called Lifesavers. And SAVERS is an acronym for the different steps that he performs in his morning and that from his learning and from his research that he recommends that other people do each morning to help maintain the highest standards. So S stands for silence or meditation, deep breathing, prayer, gratitude, whatever you'd want to do in that silent stage. Second up is affirmations. And affirmations is an interesting one. One guy that may come to mind when you think of affirmations is Muhammad Ali. And he said it's the repetition of affirmations that leads to belief. Once that belief becomes a deep conviction, things begin to happen. And it certainly worked for him. He rose to the top of what he was doing and is still a legend for what he did. And quite often when you hear about affirmations or when I hear about affirmations, I think that sounds a bit weird talking to yourself and saying stuff over your life and confirming stuff over what you want to see happen. But a lot of the most successful people do this sort of stuff. And they do it not because it's fun, but because it helps. It helps reinforce your own inner belief in what you're doing and what you can achieve. 
Next up is visualization. So thinking about how your day is going to go, thinking about how it's going to go well, thinking about overcoming the challenges you're facing and the best possible outcome for your day picturing the right outcome that you want and that process of visualization helps you to believe in the right story for your life the right story for your day that looks like a successful day which enables you to then go out and live that day because you've already seen it after visualization comes exercise exercise is good just for your general fitness but it also helps your blood get going it helps your brain start to switch on and get focused and it can help in lots of areas of our lives and after exercise how recommends reading so learning and building up the resources in our brain so that when we need to draw on them we've got all these resources that we've stored and finally there's scribing or writing or journaling which is just writing down whatever comes to mind and getting things out of your head getting things out of your mind onto paper and processing through what you're feeling and that really helps to declutter the mind and frees you up to think about the stuff that's important that day so this is something that i'm trying now and trying to wake up early in the morning and set my alarm for six in the morning and try and do my own routine and the most important thing here is consistency you only get the benefit from it when it's a consistent routine that you do every day and for me, that's the challenge I'm facing right now is trying to get this into a habit, trying to use good cues, good rewards and build up that craving for those rewards so that every morning when I wake up, I get into my morning routine and so far it's going well, but it's early days. So if you want to increase your chances, obviously consistency is key, but on top of that, you can also track your behavior and also make sure people know that you're doing it. Make people expect you to do it. So share your progress with them and promise to give them something every day or week or month. Yeah, and that's what we found with 6x6, which is where we launched six projects in six months, that that accountability forced us into a habit of shipping stuff. And that was one of the key aspects that enabled us to go from shipping nothing, pretty much all our lives, to shipping 10 projects in the last two years. So to round up this week's episode, while our actions might be conscious decisions at first, they will eventually turn into unconscious habits that we do without thinking if we stick at it. It's also important to realize that you have control over your habits. We all have habits that we'd like to change or new habits we'd like to introduce. As Charles Duhigg says in The Power of Habit, it's easier to reprogram an existing habit than it is to introduce a new one. So take the time to identify the cue, routine and reward, then replace the new routine with the new action you'd like to take. You can find the show notes for this week's episode at hitreply.co slash eight. You can subscribe to hear more at hitreply.co slash subscribe. So what's the most important habit for a startup founder to have? Hit reply and let us know. Thank you.